invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to those two passages in Luke's gospel this morning. We're going to talk about hope. So let me begin with the question, what are you hoping for right now? What are your expectations? Uh, I think it would be pretty common if we asked and surveyed people in our country and perhaps even around the world, I'm, I'm hoping they might say for a COVID-19 pandemic to be over. Uh, both personally and nationally. They're hoping for no more masks, no more gloves, no more social distancing, uh, no more washing my hands, at least not as many times as I've been doing, Uh, no more reports of how bad it is, how many people are suffering and dying every day, no more fear, no more anxiety, no more sorrow, no more death. I'm hoping, someone might say, I'm hoping to get my job back, or at least my stimulus check. I'm hoping to get my friends and family back. I'm hoping to get my life back, Pastor Walker. I'm hoping that someone will come up for a cure that will solve all of these problems. Israel was hoping for things, not like 21st century hope, but first century hopes. They were high in their hopes that the Messiah would come, that he would come and he would fulfill all of their personal and national expectations. In fact, that's really what the definition of hope is. If you look it up, hope is a feeling of expectation or a desire for something to happen. And that's what they wanted. That's what we want. We want something in our bad situation to happen, something good to happen. Israel had expectations. You and I have expectations. We all have certain desires. We want in our difficulties, in our hardships, and in our suffering, we want good things to happen, things that are going to change our situation and make it improve or get better. But what if the answer to our greatest need is not a hope that will change our situation, but rather a situation that will change our hope? What if our greatest need is not better circumstances so much as a better hope? What if our expectations are really not too high, they are too low? What if our hopes at times are misguided because Our desires are misguided. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor Walker? Well, let me state to you in a couple of ways today. There are three uses of the Greek word elpidzo. It's the Greek word for hope or what an expectation is. In fact, the first use is in Luke 6.34, and it, it defines, it actually uses the word expects. And what is your expectation? What is your desire? The other two flesh out for us because they're used of examples of hope and expectation of two different people during the Passion Week of Christ that we just went through. They're illustrations about Easter expectations, about the expectations that people have of Jesus and the hope that they have concerning him and how that will influence and impact their life. And certainly that is going to be the case For so many of us as well. So let me unpack them just one at a time. The first one, if you would, in chapter 23, in that passage, verses 6 to 12, I read, is that Herod 
he wanted to see Jesus. In fact, he says in the scriptures, says in that passage, that he wanted to see him for a long time. And the reason stated that he wanted to see him in verse 8 is because he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, if you're not familiar with who Herod is, the name Herod is prolific in um, the New Testament. 53 times it's used. At Jesus' birth, it was used of Herod the Great. Um, His dynasty started uh, in 40 B.C. He was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. And he was the one who orchestrated the slaughter of the innocents at Jesus' birth and tried to kill him from the very outset. But after his death, uh, many, many years later, um, Caesar split up the region uh, to other people to rule in his place. Um, When Jesus has come back from Egypt, being gone for a couple of years, um, Herod's son, Herod Archelaus, was tetrarch in Judea. But more into biblical times, and you can read it for yourself in Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, Pilate was governing Judea, Herod Antipas was the tetrarch of Galilee, and the other Herod, his other son, Herod Philip, was the tetrarch of an area called Iteria. Now Herod Antipas is the one that is in this biblical narrative, and he's the one that Jesus sees during Passion Week. He is the one also who married his brother, Philip, the other tetrarch. He married his wife. They were in love with each other, or if, probably not the right word, probably more in lust with each other, and they divorced uh, their spouses so that they to be together. Her name was Herodias, which also sounds like Herod because he was her niece. So not only was it an illegal marriage according to Torah, but it was an ancestral relationship. And John the baptizer, knowing that, pointed it out to him. Now, obviously, Herodias didn't take to that too much and being called out as being immoral publicly. And uh, although Herod uh, protected John, uh, she wanted him killed. As you read the story and the narrative about Herod and his relationship to John the baptizer and then later on to Jesus in our text, you come to the reality, although he had religious inclinations or interests at times, he had no real interest in John and really in Jesus later on. He at times would have John come in and speak to him and he was willing to hear what he had to say until it infringed on his lifestyle, until it disrupted his relationships that were far more meaningful than any relationship he might have even thought about having with God. And so eventually he rejected John's message because it wasn't, incon- it wasn't convenient It wasn't beneficial to what it meant for him to be king and to his power and what he really wanted in life. So eventually, in Luke chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, he has John locked up in a prison. And one night, if you want to read it in detail, you can read Mark chapter 6. On one night, they have a huge party. And the Bible says in Mark 6, 21, that Herod had, and this is important, he had invited his military commanders and leading men. So he's surrounded by people that he values their opinion, people that would be, quote-unquote, almost his peers. And the Bible says that Herodias sends in her daughter, Salome, in, and she dances very provocatively, if not far worse. And Herod and the men in the room are pleased by it. He makes a credibly, ridiculously, can I say it, stupid oath. And he promises her up to half of the kingdom 
She being influenced by her mom who hates John the baptizer for what he has said about her and her marriage to Herod. Asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter, literally. And so he does it. He does it. Fast forward just a little bit of time, really, to Luke chapter 23 and verse 8. He had long desired desire to see Jesus. He, he had heard about him, just like at one point he had heard about John. But Herod was not repentant of his sin. He wasn't repentant when he was hearing John the baptizer. He really wasn't interested in letting go of his deviant lifestyle. He really had never repented from his willingness to even have John beheaded. He'd only used John for the purposes that really suited him and in his own advancement until it upset his lifestyle and his relationships and what really mattered most to him. And when that was really rejecting, or I should say he rejected John because of it, because he really was not interested in having his life changed. It's no different when he comes to Jesus. He's not hoping to hear Jesus' words. The text says this, that he was hoping to see a sign from Jesus. He wanted Jesus to display his power. You see, Jesus had earlier in this very same gospel in chapter 11 said that an evil generation seeks after a sign. And they're only going to get one sign, only one display of power. And that is the sign of Jonah when Jesus raises from the dead. And even on the cross, the generation of Jesus wanted a sign from him and asking him to come down from the cross. They were just looking for Jesus to display some power. And that's really all as the king or the tetrarch of Galilee that Herod was interested in. He was interested in Jesus' power, but not his word. He had an expectation of Jesus that he would be able to do something for him. But he wasn't looking for Jesus to do something in him. And so Jesus stands before him and it says Herod questioned him at some length. In other words, it wasn't a fleeting conversation. He's talking to Jesus. He's asking him questions. We're not privy to the information about what the dialogue or the the discussion, I should say, the monologue was about. But for Herod, it was too late He hadn't been interested in John's word. He hadn't been interested in changing his life. He hadn't been interested in giving up the things that he knew the Bible said was wrong. And now he is not going to get an answer. Because the scripture says, and Jesus didn't answer him. Not even a word. And because he wasn't interested in the word, only the power, he is going to be given no words. In the first scenario, remember... He had his military commanders there. And in this passage, in Luke 23, 11, it says this time he is, Herod is there with his soldiers and the religious leaders. Here's the thing about Herod. He acts religious. He is seemingly interested in John and Jesus until he has to make decisions when he is surrounded by people who give him pressure about what they think he should be all about. And when those type of things happen, and then when his image is intimidated, his true colors come out in his life. Because he really wasn't interested in the word. Just a display of power that they might do for him. I have seen this same scenario play out over and over and over in the lives of people. People who are 
I would call superficially interested in Jesus. See, they're interested in him. Maybe they grew up in church a little bit. They know a little bit about the word of God. And they're interested in Jesus to a point. But what they're really after and what their life indicates after a while is they're just looking for him to give them a display of power. They, they really need Jesus in their life because they need him to zap their marriage so that it'll turn out okay. They're looking for someone to give them a quick fix in their finances. They, they, they get scared, and, and like the Bible says of Herod, he feared John and protected him for a while. And, you know, and sometimes they come to church and they hear a message and they know eternity is at stake and, and they want to get out of hell free card. And so for a time, they're interested in Jesus and, and maybe a little bit of the message. Or a, like now a health crisis comes up and they're interested in God and, they, and, and, and perhaps they're even watching something like today because they need a display of power. They don't want to get the COVID or if they have it, they don't want to die from it. And so they're interested and, and, and they want to hear about Jesus, but they're not really wanting to hear from Jesus. See, they're interested in seeing what he can do for them externally, but not really interested in what he can do for them internally. They're interested in Jesus' power so that it can result in a change in their situation, but not a change in their heart and in their lifestyle. They really want to use Jesus' power for what they can get, but they would just never say it that way. They like being around religious people and religious things. It makes them feel good when they come to church. They might even walk out of there and say, wow, that really was refreshing. And they have an interest in him, in Jesus, until it really costs them something. Until it forces them to decide between Jesus and their own personal beliefs or Jesus and the lifestyle that they're living until their friends and family put pressure on them to drop the religiosity. And when it happens, they often do. Until their real desires are put in jeopardy and their true colors begin to show. See, the question you have to ask, is that you? You know, teenagers, I've seen them often. They don't mind being around Jesus. They don't even mind, at least from time to time, coming to church at some point. Unless Jesus starts infringing in on their friendships. Until he starts telling them who they should and shouldn't date. Until their parents take the Jesus thing a little bit too far and start telling them what they can and can't do in their life. And who they should be around and how they should live. It doesn't just happen with teenagers. It happens with adults. You know that, right? I don't mind uh, uh, Jesus displaying a little power for me, I'm just not interested about in me too much. I, I don't mind his power. His word isn't really what I'm after. I don't think too much. And so people would say, and they wouldn't say it this way, but they live it this way. I want to see your power to help my finances. But I don't want to hear what your word says about how I should run my finances. See, I really wouldn't mind a display of your power to heal my body. But I don't want your word to tell me how I should use my body. See, I, I, I don't mind a display of your power to save my marriage, but I'm not really interested on a daily level about how to hear from your word to run my marriage. So we have expectations. Herod did. 
We have hopes of seeing Jesus and what he might be able to do for us. And some might even say, hey, I have this hope that Jesus will get me into heaven, but I'm not too interested in him getting heaven into me. And we're only really interested in a display of his power, not a declaration of his word. And can I say it as kindly as I can, that is a hope from hell. Because it isn't a hope at all. That was Herod's hope. A hope of what Jesus might do for him. And and there's a second hope, the one I read to you, if you'll turn over to chapter 24. Cleopas is the guy's name who's walking down the road to Emmaus. Most likely the second person unnamed is his wife. But he has a hope, and can I say it? Uh, He also has a hope of what Jesus can do for him. It just takes a little different shape and form. It's not so crass. It's not so outwardly ugly. I mean, he had a real belief in Jesus for more than just a sign. And they're walking down the road, and all of a sudden they're talking about what had happened and how disappointed they were that Jesus didn't turn out to be the Messiah. And this stranger comes across the road and joins them, and the Bible says they couldn't recognize him. They didn't really know that it was Jesus himself. And so the Bible uses this word talking and discussing. They're having a conversation, and it's pretty intense. I mean, emotional conversation, because they had been really disappointed in Jesus. And they're going to tell you why in the text. And Jesus comes up to them and he begins to ask questions like he's ignorant of the situation. And they think it's incredulous that anybody who had been near Jerusalem in the last number of days didn't know exactly what was happening. Now this is not, this is a different kind of, this is a hope from hurt. This is a hope that was directed in the right person but just the wrong way. And they tell Jesus, not knowing it's him, in verse 19, they said, but... Jesus was a prophet. He was, listen to this, mighty in deed and word. Interestingly, the author of Luke is also also the author of Acts. This very phrase is the exact same phrase used to describe Moses when he delivered God's people from uh, the exodus from Egypt. In Acts 7.22, it describes Moses that he was a mighty man, prophet in word and deed. I don't think that is by accident. In fact, in the text it says in verse 21, but we had hoped, see, we had a hope that Jesus was the one. It sounds very familiar for understanding Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19, where God promised that there would one day someone come who was a prophet just like Moses. Just like Moses. And that there would be another exodus someday, a new exodus. In fact, it's hinted at in the Mount of Transfiguration in the same book, Luke 9, 30 and 31, where none other than Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus and he's transfigured. And here's what the Bible says they were speaking about. They spoke about his, in English, departure. It is the Greek word exodus. It's exodus. He's talking about Jesus' exodus that would happen at Jerusalem when he died on the cross. And isn't it strange, at the end of this passage, when Jesus begins to prove that the the Messiah had to suffer, that it's not going to be through a sword, but through a cross, that they're redeemed. It says, verse 27, and beginning with Moses... Verse 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses. In fact, 
the, the very statement they make, we hope that he was the one to redeem Israel, is an Exodus term. Exodus 6.6 6 says, God says, but I will redeem you by my outstretched arm. The word redemption is an Exodus term. It means to buy out of slavery. And see, that's what Cleopas wanted Jesus to do for him. And not just for him. But for all of Israel, he wanted the thumb of oppression to be loosened by the Romans. He wanted Jesus to come as a military Messiah. He wanted him to use the sword. He wanted all of the problems externally to end, just like you and I do when it comes to COVID-19. Herod was hoping for a sign from Jesus. Cleopas was hoping for a sword from Jesus. The one wanted Jesus to be a miraculous Jesus, the other one a military Jesus, but both of them had expectations and they were wrong about him. They were wrong about him. Cleopas's expectation certainly wasn't a bad one. We don't fault him for it. He wanted national freedom. They were tired of being slaves. They were tired of people like Herod and Caesar being over them. When all they truly wanted was their money. They wanted a true king. And with that true king, they wanted a true kingdom. But they just didn't understand why it hadn't happened that way. See, the reality is they wanted Jesus to be a power over king. They didn't want him to be just like Herod and Caesar, but like him enough to give them what they needed and what they wanted. They did not expect the cross. Because to die on the cross proved that you were a failed Messiah. That's why Peter adamantly in the garden tries to kill one of the Roman soldiers and cuts off his ear. Why? Because nobody had the expectation, nobody had the hope that their redemption would come that way. And as they walked down the road, the Bible says when Jesus talked to them, they stood still and they were sad. Their face was sad. Why? Because they looked at Jesus and they thought there was no hope. But here's the reality that they have missed. And perhaps you have missed. That you're not without hope. That's the name of a book written by Nick Schweiler. Nick Schweiler wrote a book called Not Without Hope. And he tells the story uh, about the reason why he wrote the book. On February 28, 2009, he, as a 24-year-old uh, professional trainer for sports, uh, professional sports and athletes, went fishing with his three friends. His three best friends were NFL players, Marquise Cooper, Corey Smith, and William Bleakley. And they decided that before the uh, cold front came in, they lived in Tampa, Florida area, and... Uh, they were going to go out for a little fishing trip and have a lot of fun and relaxation before the storm hit. And so they were out there having a good time, and winds and waves began to pick up. And so they said, that's our cue to pack up. And so they did, and, and they got going, and as they went to leave, they had a problem that the anchor had got stuck. And so one of them, Will Blinkley, said he came up with a solution that he hoped would solve their problem. So they tied the anchor rope to the stern of the boat and then they hit the throttle as hard as they could. They were hoping that would yank the anchor free, but it didn't at all. In fact, instead of that, the stern began to sink because it pulled 
The force pulled it under the water, and before they could do anything about it, the boat began to fill with water, and within a matter of moments, the entire boat had capsized 70 miles out from shore. And as he says in the book, and so the nightmare began. Very small life jackets were of very little help. No emergency beacons so that someone could see them as the night passed and they tried to weather the storm. Numerous times they tried to get their cell phones to work, but being 70 70 miles out into the water, they never did. They had no food. They had no water. The storm was brutal. All night long, Almost 24 hours, actually. They battled hypothermia, hallucinations, hunger, dehydration, and ultimately hopelessness. It is tragic, and I will spare you the details. It is tragic to read how Nick Schweiler, one by one throughout the night at different stages in different ways, watched each one of his three friends, NFL players, die and drift off into the water. Everything he had put his hope in had vanished. Toward the end of the book, he said at that point in his life, all by himself trying to sit on the, uh, the top of the boat in the freezing water, looked to the heavens and he said, I didn't have anything else to do but to look and hope and pray. Here was a man who had lost everything, disappointed in how life had turned out. And he says, I was just hoping that someone would find me. The very next morning, he woke up on top of the boat and he heard a motor and a boat had found him and he was saved. See, he, he thought there was no hope. You see, Cleopas Jesus died. I watched him die on the cross. I, I know they buried him in the tomb. He knows the facts. He knows about Jesus and what happened to Jesus. But he doesn't understand it. And he thinks that he is without hope. Because, can I tell you this? A sign hope is not a hope. A sword hope is not a hope. And you have to come to the end of your false hopes before you can ever receive the true hope. And the true hope is not a sign, it's not a sword, it's a savior in Jesus. And what he really needed was not a hope to fit his situation, but a situation that would bring him to the place that he put his hope in the right thing. And so do you and I. See, what's best for us and what we need the most is not a Savior who can do something for us, but a Savior that can do something in us. One that will not just change our situation on the outside, but one that will change our situation on the inside. And that's exactly what happens when they're walking down the road. And Jesus began, the Bible says, to tell them from the scriptures about himself and what the meaning of the suffering was and why he had to die. And he abrades them with this little verse, catch it, Because he mentions it twice. 24-25 says, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart. Slow of heart. See, the real problem was not the Romans on the outside, but the sin on the inside. It was a heart problem 
they couldn't believe because they were putting their trust in a false hope. See, you might be watching today and you, have, you think this, that if I could just be a good enough person, if I can just try to have my good things outweigh my bad things, you know, if I could go to church a little bit more often, do a few more nicer things, maybe, you know, if you're Catholic, you're going to go through the rituals or the sacraments and, or whatever religion. You see, you could say, listen, if I could just externally change my life a little bit, if I could just stop doing this and start doing this, So you've externalized your problems and you're hoping that Jesus will have a display of power for you in your life. But the problem is, hope comes in a different way. Slow of heart to believe. And after he's done with their Bible study, wouldn't we have all liked to have been there? Verse 32, he says, they say, in reflection back on talking with Jesus about the scriptures and hearing his word, which, by the way, is what, how people get hope, not displays of power, unless it's the power of the gospel. Did not, verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us? See, that's the power that you really need. You need the power of the word of God given to you by Jesus to burn in your heart, to burn away all the false hopes that you're trusting in, signs or swords or whatever form it might take in your life, but rather burn deep and penetrate into your life to help you understand this is who Jesus is. This is what his cross death means. It is not failure. It is victory. And to understand the empty tomb is the hope that you really need. For what Cleopas and his wife needed is what you and I needed. And that is this, a heart change in order to have a hope change. And that is what, as you're watching this morning, you, you might be needing. See, you need a heart change because you need a hope change. Not hoping in yourself, not hoping in your church affiliation, not hoping in your personal righteousness, not hoping in your own goodness, not hoping in, and you fill in the blank. But see, you'll never have a hope change that you put it in Jesus and his cross, death, and resurrection only for You'll never put your hope in him until he gives you a different heart. And that only happens when he speaks truth there into our hearts. Can I say it to you? He didn't die on the cross to make your life better. He died on the cross to give you a better life. Despite Joel Olstein and the heretical thoughts of your best life now, don't believe that trash. He died not to make your life better, but to give you a better life. A life with real hope. A life that has the understanding of who Jesus is and what he did and how that saves you from your sin. See, Cleopas and his wife had a conversation about Jesus, but it wasn't until they had a conversation with Jesus that it completely turned their life around. It's a metaphor. I mean, it's, in the, it's, it's really symbolic. But in the passage, they're walking away from Jerusalem, away from the cross, away from the empty tomb. You know why? Because they lost their hope. But they have this conversation with Jesus, i.e. mainly and namely about him telling them what the truth about him and his suffering. And the word is, and you know what happens? They turn around immediately and they go right back to it. And what they were leaving behind, they now embrace 
because it has now become the very center of the life, their lives. And they have a new hope. But you know how it happened? Three words, same one, 31, 32, 45. He opened their eyes and then he opened the scriptures, verse 45. He opened their understanding. You see, in the garden, in Genesis, Satan opened Adam and Eve's eyes and they knew they were naked. You know why? Because sin was involved. But Jesus has reversed that. He has opened their eyes to Forgive their sins, not open their eyes to Satan's reality, but the Jesus reality of who he is and what he has done. And when that type of opening takes place and we see him, not for a sign, not for a sword, not for a miracle, not for some military conquest of our own making. But he opens our eyes and we see him for who he is. And the Bible says they knew who he was in the breaking of the bread And it wasn't some miracle that set them off. It was Jesus' relationship with them and what the bread symbolized in the giving of his life. See, you and I, we are not without hope if we are not without Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have hope. So let me end where I began. What are you hoping for? in or for right now all those things that we talked about at the beginning they're good things but you know what the best thing is the most important thing and truthfully the only needed thing is that you hope in Jesus that he died and rose again to take your sin on the cross of Calvary to pay it full and to give you eternal life if you'll put your faith and your hope and your trust in him In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. That's Titus 1-2. If you don't know Jesus, would you trust in him? Would you call on him and say, Jesus, you're my only hope. You died and rose for my sins. And I want you to forgive my sins. I want you to come into my life. I want to surrender my whole life to you. Jesus, I want to follow you the rest of my days. You are my hope only hope and you'll be able to say as we're going to sing now in just a few moments all I have is Christ
Thank you for tuning in with us today and worshiping. We do have a special uh, prayer service tonight. And we look forward to having you come back with us and pray with us at 6 o'clock for the needs of our country and our world and the people right here in our own community. Lord bless.